This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Nice to have you along today on Simcoe Day, named after John Graves Simcoe, who was the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada from 1791 to 1796. What was life like in Toronto 215 years ago? Caitlin Wainwright of Heritage Toronto joins us now to talk about the early days of Toronto's history. Caitlin, lovely to have you here on Simcoe Day. Thanks for having me, Jane. We know a lot about life during this period, thanks to Lieutenant Governor Simcoe's wife, Elizabeth. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so Elizabeth Simcoe, who was the, the wife of the Lieutenant Governor, she traveled with uh, John Simcoe and two of their children when they came over in uh, 1791. And the next five years that they spent in Upper Canada, Elizabeth spent a lot of time um, both recording in diary form and then also um, she was a watercolor painter. And so she has these beautiful watercolors of uh, Toronto, then known as York, um, its harbour, its rivers and, and Upper Canada as a whole. It's a really great picture. Well, paint a picture for us of what life looked here uh, in Toronto based on her paintings and her sketches. Sure. So um, her, her diary, first of all, it indicates that when... Um, Simcoe was appointed lieutenant governor, there was some discussion that was had about whether or not she would follow her colonel and and would come with her husband uh, across the ocean because at the time, um, Upper Canada was not particularly well settled. There was concern about the conditions. Uh, Very few people had more than a a one-room cabin for shelter in terms of what the settlers were experiencing. There were no proper roads of which to speak, and, and formal education was extremely limited, which is part of why she left. Um, her three or four of her, her other children who were schooling age back in England. Um, the pictures that she paints are, you can, uh, you can align them quite nicely with parts of the city today and get a really good understanding of um, the tree cover, for example, that's still a prominent feature of, of Toronto, and then also uh, the less formal roads that were maybe trails, trails like Davenport um, and even Young Street, which John Simcoe later established as a formal road. And they also built quite a home where uh, the Castle Frank subway station is now. Yes. So uh, the first couple of years that they were here, they they lived in a a tent when they were in York, a sort of a canvas house. And then they acquired about 200 acres on the Don River and they named that Castle Frank for their son, Francis. It's quite amazing to see her actual sketches and paintings because you're looking at wilderness effectively with this beautiful home on the hill that was Castle Frank. And you can kind of imagine that that would have been that same area of Toronto, but it's just such a foreign concept for us when those of us living in Toronto look back on those days to think of Toronto as effectively a wooded area. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. There's a a wonderful uh, painting 
of, uh, of both Castle Frank, which you mentioned, and also of uh, John Scadding, who was Simcoe's right-hand man and his clerk. Uh, and Scadding built his cabin roughly where Riverdale Park is today. It was moved later on by the York Pioneers, one of the earliest historical societies, and now sits on the, the C&E grounds. You can go see the, scat, the, the Scadding cabin there today, but the painting itself, it's, it's this log cabin that is surrounded by lush greenery and rivers. Um, she was also really interested in the natural history of the region, and she would write in her diary a lot about um, the animals and, and the natural culture that surrounded her. We invite your questions as well to Caitlin Wainwright of Heritage Toronto, 416-360-0740, 1-866-744-740. Martin from Brampton, you're on Fight Back. Go ahead. What would you like to add to the conversation? Martin? Yes, go ahead, Martin. Oh, hello. Um, I was uh, brushing up on my uh, John Graves Simcoe thing today. Oh, good for you. And... Uh, do you know that he was the first guy that had a bill passed in Parliament? And, uh, and it was the Anti-Slavery Act of 1793. Wow. Would you like to comment on that, Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, before, um, a lot of people in, in Canada don't know his uh, sort of pre-Lieutenant Governor history, but he was um, involved as a member of the British Army in the American Revolutionary War, and he was also a staunch abolitionist. Uh, so Martin is absolutely right. He he was very much in, in, in favor of the abolition of slavery, and that was one of the uh, the first bills that he passed. And that would have been, so that was the late 1700s that slavery was abolished in Canada, or in Upper and Lower Canada, as it was yes. known then. Yes. Exactly. Many, many decades before it was abolished in the United States, we should add. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was 1793. We're coming up on the, the 125th anniversary uh, of that uh, act being passed in 2018. And, and initially, uh, he proposed the outright abolition of slavery, um, and there was some back and forth, and, and eventually there was uh, legislation that was passed that allowed for gradual abolition. Right. So slaves already in the province, they remained enslaved until death, um, but no new slaves could be brought into Upper Canada, and, and children born to fe- female slaves, they were freed at 25. Did Elizabeth and John Graves have slaves? Or just, or did they have servants? I mean, I'm assuming that if he was against they slavery, had, yeah, they had staff. They, they had, had staff. staff. Um, to the best of my knowledge, from what I've read, which has principally been about Elizabeth and her biography, um, she had hired hands, but they weren't enslaved. And if there's someone out there who wants to correct me, I, I welcome that. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. I'm getting quite a kick out of reading some of what she wrote in her diary, Elizabeth Simcoe. For instance, we dined in the woods and ate part of a raccoon. It was very fat and tasted like lamb if eaten with mint sauce. November twentieth, seventeen ninety three. Yeah, her, her diaries paint a really wonderful picture for us of not only what life at the time looked like, but, um, you know, what the life of the wife of a lieutenant governor was like. She spent a lot of time uh, playing host to dignitaries. A lot of uh, what she was experiencing was very new and very different from her life in Devonshire in England. Um, and I think she probably would have loved to have continued these adventures later on. Unfortunately, 
for her, the Colonel uh, Simcoe, when they returned to England, she he had been appointed commander in chief in India, and, and Elizabeth was actually planning to follow him, but unfortunately, he died before they could leave. Yes, yeah, she she lived quite a bit longer than him. To to she the right, another four decades. Yeah, isn't that amazing for that time? Yes. Yeah. And she loved her life here. I mean, she enjoyed the adventure. For somebody who uh, came from a very upper-crust lifestyle, she really enjoyed the early settler lifestyle. I I almost find that hard to believe based on the winters that would have been happening here in southern Ontario at that time. Absolutely. The the winters would have been uh, quite difficult on them. In fact, their their first winter, they did a lot of traveling in between York and uh, Niagara back and forth um, throughout the seasons. And and the winter when they arrived in uh, the Canadas, they they first arrived at Quebec. And and Elizabeth was quite excited to see Quebec in part because uh, her father had served there under uh, General Wolf at the the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, and he had died before uh, Elizabeth was born, so she never knew her father, and it was another lens through which she could understand her family history. Right. Uh, and fortunately for her, but perhaps unfortunately in, in the bigger picture, uh, the weather was so bad that winter that they actually wintered over in Quebec before moving inward into the interior. Uh, in fact, she didn't know her mother either. Her mother died during childbirth, and she was raised by relatives. Yes, that's that's exactly right. So uh, she has the, the unfortunate and somewhat melancholy middle name Posthuma, which is a tribute that her grandparents uh, gave to her in honor of the fact that she, uh, both of her parents predeceased her. We're speaking with Caitlin Wainwright of Heritage Toronto on this Simcoe Day, 416-360-0740-1866-744-740. Uh, she had some hardship in addition to the weather here, although... Uh, losing a child at a young age was quite common back then. She did write about the loss of her seventh child, Catherine Simcoe, who died only 15 months after birth. In a letter home, Elizabeth wrote, she was the sweetest, tempered, pretty child imaginable, just beginning to talk and walk in the suddenness of the event. You may be sure shocked me inexpressibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they um, they had... Four children, uh, when they came to Toronto, they brought with them their youngest two, Sophia and Francis, and uh, she gave birth to a daughter about a year later. And as you mentioned, uh, unfortunately, Catherine, their infant daughter, she died of of malaria or something similar. And Mm -hmm. she's actually the first recorded burial at the Garrison Burying Grounds, which is now uh, Victoria Memorial Square uh, in downtown Toronto. And and I imagine that that loss... um, probably shook Elizabeth quite a bit when she and uh, John were first newlyweds. Uh, One of her biographers talks about how um, there was concern about whether or not Elizabeth would be able to successfully have children, given what had happened uh, with her own mother in childbirth. And and so after their first one was born, they thought, okay, we can can do this again. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they went on to have after they returned to England, they had another four children uh, between 1798 and, and 1804. So, Eleven children in all. Yes. Children were born pretty well a year apart uh, back in those days in the late 1700s. Uh, I, and also, you know, what's interesting, when she was recalled to England, she was, she was quite upset about it, wasn't she? She wanted to stay here. 
Absolutely. Um, she really enjoyed, she describes being able to, to follow her own fancy and that that was a very satisfactory mode of living is how she describes it. Um, and she very much reveled in being the wife of Lieutenant Governor Simcoe and, and that social status. I've heard often as I uh, was, was researching this piece for, for Torontoists, heard people say to me, oh, Elizabeth Simcoe, she hated it here. And I'm thinking, <laughs> where did you get that, that idea from? Um, one of the, the Jarvis family, which was another prominent family in Toronto, uh, the wife of William Jarvis, she writes, oh, everybody is so sick of, of, sick of being in York, and, but the lady likes the place and, and therefore everyone else must. So there is this real sense that um, Elizabeth was getting on just fine here, that she really enjoyed it and, and everybody else should sort of try and do their best to as well. <laughs> And what was interesting, too, about Elizabeth is that she, when upon arrival of getting back to England, she presented 32 watercolors to King George III. That was quite a gesture and obviously received very well because it was able to give him a picture of what life was like here in the New World. Absolutely. So, you know, I I think that Every historian of Toronto and anyone who captures Toronto's history through any form of, of art and culture, we're sort of riding on the coattails of, of Mrs. Simcoe. Um, the family, they also brought home a number of treasures from Upper Canada that they had collected or traded or purchased, so textiles and swords. They also brought back with them their canoes and their canoe paddles and even their uh, winter sleigh. That is such a Canadian thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like the Eskimo carvings that um, leaders in Canada will offer visitors from other nations. It, it reminded me very much of this Canadiana that we hold so dearly, and they, after their five short years here, wanted to take it back to England. Absolutely, there's a, a long history of that in uh, international relations, regardless of of what country you look to or look at, that there's a a desire to bring back that culture and that knowledge that you've uncovered during your time somewhere else. How important was John Graves Simcoe to our history here in Toronto? Um, He did a lot of work in the early years of the town of York after it was established as, as York in 1793. A lot of the early city planning, he kind of formalized what had been established um, in part by by First Nations and other settlers uh, who came before him in terms of formalizing things like Young Street or formalizing Davenport Road, where these were trails and routes um, that had been maybe used previously. But he said, you know, we actually need to be able to move from Lake Ontario to Lake Simcoe for strategic uh, purposes. And that's how, you know, Young Street uh, became constructed. Um, So he's kind of the, the forefather of, of Toronto as we understand it today. And I guess appropriately enough, he has his own day, Simcoe Day, which is the civic holiday is only called Simcoe Day here in the city of Toronto. That's um, partially true. Uh, I believe it's also known as Simcoe Day in London, Ontario, which he also was uh, responsible for founding. But it is a really interesting regionality that we have in um, the parts of Canada where there is a civic holiday weekend. So, of course, in Quebec, uh, their holiday, St. Jean-Baptiste Day, falls in June. So they aren't celebrating a, a long weekend this weekend. But in, in Winnipeg, for example, I believe today is known as Terry Fox Day. Um, in Guelph, it's uh, Galt Day in honor of uh, John Galt, who founded the town of Guelph. And in Ottawa, where I, where I studied, it's Colonel By Day. So we have this 
you know, sort of real regionalism happening over the the civic holiday celebration, which I think is is very apt as well in terms of being Canadian and being very regional. Wonderful. And reflecting back, Caitlin, thanks so much. My pleasure, Jane. Caitlin Wainwright of Heritage Toronto. And still to come here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby. And Ontario artists look back at John Graves Simcoe and his wife, Elizabeth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about the days of John Graves Simcoe in the late 1700s in honour of the man for whom Simcoe Day is named here in Toronto. Joining us on the line now is Ontario artist Charles Pachter. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Oh, you're welcome. Now tell us about your fascination with the times of John Graves Simcoe. Uh, I came across a book on Simcoe and Niagara-on-the-Lake back in the uh, 1970s, I guess it was. I was always fascinated by the character of English Canada, being the grandson myself of uh, poor immigrants who came uh, uh, to Canada in the early 20th century. But I was always remembering in school how, uh, you know, we, we, we grew up in this sort of colonial culture, and I was trying to figure out how the, between, about the difference between Canada and the United States. And when I came across this biography on Simcoe, I came to realize that the key moment in the change of North America was after the American Revolution, um, when 50,000 loyalists came north into what is now Ontario, mm-hmm. having bet on the wrong horse and having remained loyal to Great Britain, came uh, into what became Upper Canada and Lower Canada, after the British had uh, somehow realized that uh, it was game over for them in the new United States, they came hightailing it up here quickly to uh, to recreate the paradise lost of the 13 colonies. So here are all these people coming up from Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island, and under the leadership of John Graves Simcoe, who had fought in the American Revolutionary War as a young soldier. He was at the Battle of Bunker Hill in Boston. He was in the American Theater of War for over 12 years, and he went home wounded, married an heiress named Elizabeth Posthuma Gwillem. Posthuma, because her mother died in childbirth, Mm -hmm. posthumous. And uh, uh, eventually lobbied with the British government, became a member of Parliament, um, uh, and uh, ended up getting the plum job as a colonial military career soldier of recreating uh, the the new North American version of British North America after they lost the 13 colonies. So here we were, 1793. He came to uh, what is now Ontario in 1791 to Kingston, and then uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake, famous uh, opening of Parliament there in 1793. And his wife was brilliant, Elizabeth Posthum and Gwillem. She wrote a diary, which every Ontarian and Canadian should read. It's one of the finest examples of early reportage of what life was like in the wilderness in the 1790s. But Simcoe is a major player in the history of Canada. And there should have been uh, beautiful uh, documentaries on his life and on his commitment. He had a vision to recreate uh, a British paradise in Central North America, which is what he did. He also anglicized everything. Let us not forget what is now Toronto and Ontario was once New France. And when Simcoe came, uh, he renamed everything. Uh, Lake Simcoe, he named after his father. 
who died on the way to the Battle of the Plains of Abraham under Wolfe. Um, he died off Anticosti Island and was buried at sea. Uh, I'm up in Orillia right now, which is a charming, historic Canadian city, as you all know, only an hour and a half from Toronto, when you know when to go and <laughs> to avoid the traffic. Yes. But uh, Lake Simcoe was once called uh, Lac Auclay, A-U-X-C-L-A-I-E-S. Une clay in French was a fishing trap. And there's a 4,000-year-old um, um, heritage site up here in the Narrows, uh, where the First Nations, the Rama Indians, the uh, Ojibwe and the Mijikining, trapped fish going from Lake Kuchiching into Lake, what is now Lake Simcoe. But it, the area was once all French, but when Simcoe came, he renamed everything, including East and West Willembury, named after his wife's uh, family, the Willems. Wonderful. So, but it's a fascinating time. It is. Anybody who would want to get us a fix on colonial uh, English Canada. I'm having a show opening in London in two weeks today, so it's a nice coincidence that you called. It's called Iconic Moments, the British Loyalist Legacy and the Founding of Modern English Canada. And many of my paintings, including the most famous one of the Queen on a Moose, are in this show in London. It's my first big show in London. Well, your your website is very extensive, uh, cpactor.com, oh, yeah. and then yeah. slash In Search of Simcoe has yeah. all of your paintings of yeah. of the days of John Graves Simcoe and his wife Elizabeth. Yeah. Did you yeah. were you inspired these paintings by the ones that Elizabeth had done herself? Well, she was a great watercolorist, and she more, mostly recorded the little uh, you know landscapes and waterfalls and what have you. But uh, as a kind of committed Canadian pop artist, I wanted to create images that everybody could relate to. I'm a communicator, and I was fascinated by, for example. Um, the uh, soldiers' uniforms that Simcoe Reed had redesigned when they were, they used to be red, and they redid them in green and white so they could be camouflaged in the birch trees and not picked off by rebel soldiers. Little things like that. But uh, he, his papers, of which there was the Cruikshank, Ernest Cruikshank was the historian who transcribed all of his papers in the early 1900s. He wrote voluminous correspondence. He didn't get along with Lord Lord Dorchester, Sir Guy Carleton, who was his boss. Mm -hmm. And he complained a lot about him. And in fact, he was not Lord Simcoe. That was a misnomer. That was the name of the hotel in Toronto in the 50s. He was Governor Simcoe. I think he would have liked to have been Lord, but he wasn't. (laughs) Dorchester became Lord. But there are a lot of these fascinating stories about these intrepid British career soldiers who, in fact, um, created what is now modern English Canada. Uh, You know, the whole story of the division of North America into two countries is because of um, a major player like John Graves Simcoe. So how did did it feel here in Upper Canada uh, that would have been different than the time he had spent in the United States, he obviously would have tried very hard to make this area um, an, an exact opposite, I suppose, of the United States. Yes, he was. Well, first of all, he was a loyal British citizen. And if you look, go up, on, go into Google and take any information on John Graves Simcoe, the opening of the first parliament in Niagara-on-the-Lake in September of 1793, it has been recreated several times by reenactors in Niagara. But it was a fascinating period. It was, they had all, whatever pomp and circumstance they could muster up in the middle of the colonial wilderness, he did it. 
well-dressed, and you can read his address to the, uh, I think the entire parliament was like 12 white guys or something, stretching all the way from Kingston to Niagara. But at the time, they had a huge task on their hand, and that was to recreate a British system of government, as opposed to the American system, in uh, Upper Canada. And, you know, he was only here for six years. And they lived in a, what they called the canvas house. It was a tent that he bought from the effects of, uh, of uh, Captain Cook. And I've done many paintings of the canvas house, and some of them are going to be in the show in London. Yeah, I'm looking uh, at them right now. Ah, nice, nice. Anyway, it was, it was an exciting uh, project for me. And were I a filmmaker, I'd love to see a marvelous documentary on the life of John Graves Simcoe. Well, I it think. seems to me that that's only a matter of time. because, I hope so. And I hope that for our children, the next generations of children, that this excitement and this vivid picture that you're painting of life then is something that can be transferred to them beyond the history books so we can start to right embrace on. our Canadian <laughs> heritage. I like, the, I like the way you think. That's exactly what it should be. And I think in time it will happen. Uh, and her diaries are absolutely brilliant. The Diary of Mrs. Simcoe. You can find them online in any of the A books or any of those uh, categories. I promise all your listeners that if you pick up her diaries, you'll be amazed at how perceptive she was. For example, she says how... They fished for salmon in the Don River. There were no stores. There was no electricity. There was no plumbing. How did they live in those years? I know. They, they lit up birch bark at night. The, the First Nations showed them, and the fish were attracted to the light, and they scooped up salmon three and four feet long, which they then smoked the way the Indians taught them. And that's how they learned about maple syrup and all this stuff. But just the intrepid nature of their daily lives. Try and imagine what it was like living 220 odd years ago or whenever it was to uh, to try and make sense of creating a, a new country. And they did it. Well, it's amazing they all didn't die of frostbite or hypothermia. That's she what that's what amazes me. The illnesses and yeah. how the Indians gave them certain medications made from local plants and everything. Without the First Nations, they wouldn't have survived. Oh, is that right? Oh, absolutely. And so, what was the relationship like with the native people then between friendly. the? Yeah, friendly. Yep, uh, extremely friendly. And uh, she remarks on the handsome outfits that the, the the men wore, and with the feathers and the hand painted this and that. She's got it all. She observed all of it in her diary, and it's quite brilliant. And she goes on and on about how kind they were and how well they all uh, related to one another, etc. It's just amazing. Well, it is amazing because you think there there were much more confrontational experiences between the natives and the Europeans in various parts of North America. Like this, this was often not a friendly meeting. Correct. And let's face it, we were at fault, the European settlers, and how we uh, ended up, uh, you know, overwhelming the the First Nations uh, people who were here. But there are some very special moments in the diary where she talks with great affection about many of the... um, many of the the First Nations people and how they taught them how to survive. Mm. Without them, they couldn't have made it. No, it doesn't sound like it. What can we learn? Uh, We're speaking with Charles Pachter, a famous Ontario artist here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane Brown for Libby's Nimer. What can we learn from the Simcoe's that would resonate with us here in Toronto today? Well, I think at some point we have to uh, give due recognition to the fact. uh, Let's face it, most countries coming into being because somebody killed in order to conquer and rule. 
And this is what happened with Great Britain. War is hell. I'm something of a pacifist. And when I see how countries come into being because people kill each other for power and territory, I guess I can say somewhat glibly, better to have been conquered by Great Britain than by Iraq. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a question of history that Britain at the time was the... um, the, uh, you know, it was the leading nation on the planet, this island nation that created empires all over the world. Britain had conquered uh, India around the same time as it uh, did English Canada, you know. So, I mean, it, it, it's an amazing story of what it did. The British Empire, as we once knew it, no longer exists. And again, my uh, affectionate mischief with the royals uh, goes back to uh, Simcoe, um, uh, founding English Canada and making a new British reality here in uh, the central part of Brit- of North America, and I'm fascinated by all that. And I'm I often ask, uh, you know, the French expression "D'où venons-nous? Qui sommes-nous? Où allons-nous? Where do we come from? Who are we? Where are we going?" And it'll be fascinating to see what happens when our magnificent Queen Elizabeth, who is unlike anybody in the history of the world, when she dies, what's going to happen here? Will it be the same? Who will be head of state? Will it be the same reality as it was under Elizabeth? I I ask these questions as an artist because I'm fascinated by how things change as time moves on. And Queen Elizabeth, the legendary uh, Queen Elizabeth, who could live another 10 years, maybe more, she has actually, she's seen your paintings, right, and commented on them. Not only did she see them, it's the cutest story. I was in London last, a year ago, uh, February of 2015, when for the reopening of Canada House, uh, they did a gorgeous job uh, renovating Canada House in Trafalgar Square, and she cut the ribbon. And I only had like 20 seconds with her, but she came up to me and I said, Your Majesty, this is such an honor. 46 years ago, I painted you as the Queen of Canada seated on a moose. And thanks to you, I made a living all these years. And she said, How amusing. <laughs> I love she it. Smiled with a radiant smile. She was not the least offended. She thought it was cute. Yeah. Well, she she's supposed to have a good sense of humor, so oh, I, I can indeed. just imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping one or two of the royals at least get to see the show in London. It's only on for a few weeks, but we'll keep our fingers crossed. Wonderful. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.